your friend, the therapist. On this podcast, we're skipping the small talk and working to destigmatize mental health through intimate conversations with everyday people about their mental health journeys and how they stay well in a world that feels like it's falling apart. Thank you so much for being here, and I hope you enjoy the conversation. Hey everyone, welcome back to the podcast. My guest today is Rachel Tumlinson. She uses she, her pronouns. Rachel is a certified somatic practitioner who has training in clinical mental health counseling. She writes about healing from trauma, especially religious trauma, as she is a survivor herself, as well as a mother of two living in Corpus Christi, Texas. Just a note about today's episode, we do talk quite a lot about trauma, although there are no um, details really as far as um, explicit details or things that might be upsetting. However, just please know we do reference trauma, uh, specifically religious trauma, quite a bit. So if that is a difficult topic to hear about, just take care. All right. Hi, Rachel. It is so good to have you here on the podcast. How are you? I'm so good. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. Yeah. We were just saying before we hit record how nice it is to meet Instagram friends in kind of real life, right? Although this is still virtual, mm-hmm. um, but nice to put faces to names. And Rachel is someone I've been following on Instagram for a while and just really love um, what you're sharing as it pertains to recovering from high control religion. So we will get into all of that. Um, but first, the question I start every podcast with, what does wellness mean to you? What does wellness mean to me? That's such a big question. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it's a big question, but it's such an important question. And mm. I mean, I feel like there could be a million answers, but I feel like when I think about wellness, for me, I kind of feel like that there's layers to it. There's a lot of different things going on at once. Um, And when I think about wellness, I think about kind of like being in contact. I feel like every like piece of wellness, whether it's physical, emotional, mental, spiritual, I feel like you're coming in contact uh, with something, whether it's you're coming in contact with yourself, you're listening to your body, um, you're coming in contact with, um, your inner world or your feelings and needs. We're talking, if you're talking about mental health, um, I, I just, I don't know. I feel like coming in contact with, I mean, you could also say connecting with, or there, I feel like there's a million ways that you can say it, but um, that's that's kind of what I think of when I think about wellness is you're coming in, into contact with whatever that thing is, whether it's a person or a feeling or a need. Uh, yeah. Are there particular things or people or places that you come in contact with or connect with in your life that supports your wellness? Yes. Um, so as far as like places go, um, I think about like being out in nature, being outside, um, things like that, connecting with people, connecting with my kids, connecting with my body. Um, 
even being, I, I hadn't been in church for a really long time, just trying to heal from a lot of, uh, religious trauma. And I'm recently able to go back to a church, um, that I really like, um, just a more like pro progressive church, um, people that are very inclusive. So I, when I, when you say places, I think about that too. I think about, um, places where I can go and be with community. Um, and that's a really, really big piece. Um, I think especially even when I think about like being super evangelical, a lot of the times, um, it's, it's a focus on like a, personal relationship with Jesus and all of that, you know? Mm -hmm. And so I feel like that is something that has, has, it's changed a lot for me. It's not about, it's not just about me, which is interesting because the religion, you're not supposed to be focused on yourself, but in so many ways, I feel like, like I was focused on myself. <laughs> mm, yes. Yeah. I'm, I'm curious how, so it sounds like you grew up or, well, let's back up. What is your religious yeah. background when you say religious trauma, yeah. control religion? What was that? Um. So growing up, it really wasn't, I didn't have terrible religious experiences growing up. Um, it didn't really start happening to me really until I graduated high school. And I went to college because I grew up in a small town. And then once I got to college, there were so many people everywhere. This town of College Station, Texas, which to many people, that seems like a super small town. But for me, it was huge. Mm. Um, mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I, I think that just that opened my eyes a lot to, um, you know, who I want to be and what I want to do in the world. And for me as a trauma survivor, I was really looking for belonging. I was looking for safety. I was looking for connection. Um, and the evangelical church was where I ended up. Um, there were things that were already put in place for me. The rules were already there. You, they tell you what to do. You know what I mean? Like, there's all this rigidity, which I kind of gravitated towards because as a trauma survivor, you're trying to like, you know, you're trying to like right the wrongs that have happened to you, even though those wrongs weren't your fault, but you internalize it. And then I feel like that's what uh, makes it so easy for a person to kind of drink the Kool-Aid when it comes to evangelicalism. Um because I was just super, super vulnerable. So yeah, once I, once I got to college, that was when I came in contact with like Southern Baptist, you know, that kind of, there are many different categories. Right. And that's kind of the one I fell into. And, um, I joined a sorority and the sorority was like this Christian sorority. It was all girls, you know, all wow. young women. And it's just, yeah, it, it's funny looking back, but man, that's what I want. You know, I wanted connection. I wanted community. Yes. I wanted so many things that, um, you know, well, I was stripped of in a lot of ways. Like you get into it thinking it's going to be really great. And 
there's just, there's a lot that, that it, being in high control religion that, that it took from me for sure. Or re-traumatized me in a lot of ways. I say that a lot because that's exactly what happened. I was a very traumatized person and I was extremely re-traumatized by taking all that trauma and like taking it to church and like allowing people to uh, tell me what to do and tell me what to think about my trauma and how to heal my trauma. You know, it just, uh, it was not good. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And I have, as a trauma therapist, I have thoughts about why that could have been traumatic, but I'm curious before I like say my piece, what, what you think was re-traumatizing about high control religion and evangelicalism specifically. Right. Um, I just think the stripping of one's autonomy was really one of the biggest things is stripping that away and, um, stripping away your right to choice, um, to have, yeah, to have embodied choice and voice. And that's something that as a church, as a trauma survivor was taken away from me, you know, my voice was taken away. And so you're trying to heal inside of this community that is telling you, to shut up. Like if you have a question, you're wrong. Like mm-hmm. get out of here. Like we don't we don't want you. Um you're dangerous, you're a heretic, mm-hmm. you're you know whatever they say. Um but yeah, your questions aren't welcome. Nothing is welcome unless it's just pre-approved and mm-hmm. pre-packaged. Um yeah. Yeah. There's no there's no room for authenticity at all. You it's it's all about keeping the status quo, I feel like in high control religion, that's like one of the biggest that you're not able to evolve. You're not able to develop as a human being. Um, so many things I could say about it just as a person with, um, with trauma and with training in clinical mental health, you know, there's so many things that I learned and I'm going, Oh, red flag. Oh, red flag. You know, but like, I didn't know that, you know, when I was in it. So, right. Yeah. Yeah. Because it was meeting a need at the time, right? Like this need for community and need to make sense of the world. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. That lack of choice is exactly what I was thinking when you said re-traumatizing is Mm -hmm. an essential part of healing from trauma is like you said, embodiment, Mm -hmm. having choice. Um, yeah, and I want to get into all of the embodiment stuff too because I know that you're a somatic practitioner as well. But um, before we go there, I am wondering, did you have even experience within evangelicalism prior to college or was this your first introduction to, to it? That's a good question. Um, I had, I feel like one of my first experiences where I feel like later on it was used as a story, like almost like exploiting myself. <laughs> like this is the moment I got saved. And at this moment, mm-hmm. blah, 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 you know, and it, mm-hmm. it's like, that's how it is in evangelicalism. You have this narrative and you're clinging to this narrative and you're trying to prove things to people. Like this is what God did for me, you know? Like, yeah. Um, so yeah, I had a, I had a moment, um, when I was in high school, I think I was a junior in high school and I went to this youth group event thing with a friend and 
I remember the pastor or youth pastor, whoever it was, it was just, you know, using this like slow music and, you know, mm-hmm. you know, hands raised and all these things and the lights were dark and, and it's like, uh, talking, he's talking about what, what are, what choices we're making, like how we're sinners, like all of these things. And I mean, I was very traumatized. I was still living in the trauma. The abuser at the time was my next door neighbor. Like I was living, you know, severely dysregulated. If, I mean, it's, that was just a place that was not helpful was it was not a helpful place for me to be the questions they were asking the things that they were insinuating um for you to kind of feel really really bad about any uh you know quote unquote bad or wrong choice you've ever made I mean I look back now and I'm like it makes tons of sense the things that I was doing in high school not only because I was a high schooler um and development developmental you know wise but and just being a trauma survivor. Um, so yeah, I, I had an experience where, you know, I broke down crying and all of that. Um, and it's, it's hard to make sense of those types of experiences later. It's really, really hard to make sense of them when you feel like you look back and you go, Oh man, there are like all these different tactics that they were using that like, obviously I wouldn't have noticed what those tactics were, but looking back, um, it makes a lot of sense. Um, but yeah, I, I, you know, I have a, it's part of my story, you know, that's, it's just part of it. But yeah, that was, that was one of the big ones that, you know, I was like, Oh, this is when I got saved or (laughs) whatever whatever you want to call it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, right. That that got saved moment is so, um, like pushed within this. I rem- I grew up in evangelicalism, mm-hmm. and so I never really had a moment where I like got saved because I was like born into it. But there was still this pressure. Like I would like get saved like every week, all the I time. Was so scared that right. I hadn't done it right or something. Uh, yes, that hadn't yeah. done it right. That was such a big part of it. Oh gosh. Like, are you sincere enough? Are you, I mean, I feel like I really dealt with a lot of scrupulosity, like this, you know, form of OCD, I'm sure as you know, you're a therapist, but that golly, looking back and you're like, oh no, I thought I had to pray like a certain way. I thought I had to be, and I remember hearing it from the pulpit. Like if you are not sincere enough, you do not come up here and take communion. That's exactly what they would tell us. Yeah. It's like, who are you to take away my experience with God? Like communion, you know, it's supposed to be like this open table. Yeah. Um, man, it's crazy. It's just, yeah, it's crazy looking back. Yeah. Can you say more about the scrupulosity and the OCD? Because um, I don't think I've actually talked about that particular concept on the podcast before. I'm familiar mm-hmm. with it, but do yeah. you mind just giving a little like what your definition yeah. is or how you make sense of it? Yeah, that? for sure. Um, basically, you know, 
I'm not like an expert on it, obviously, but Me neither. <laughs> I, I would, yeah, but I would say definitely just a form of OCD that where your um, compulsions or your um, rituals or different things that you're doing, they, they revolve around uh, religion. They revolve around religious practices. They revolve around religious quote unquote, like thinking, um, I mean, yeah, be, because that's the thing, too, about evangelicalism is they would be like, even your thoughts are sinful, yeah. man. Like, yeah. <laughs> like, you can't even think correctly, mm-hmm. <laughs> supposedly, you know. So mm-hmm. as far as scrupulosity go, it's like, yeah, I started thinking like, oh, oh, my gosh, I, I can't think about that if I think about mm-hmm. lust or I think about this or whatever. And it's like, especially if you're neurodivergent, I mean, if that's intersecting with the fact that you are a traumatized person, mm-hmm. um, there are just, it's just a whole mess of issues um, that make you at risk for some of these uh, can, can be very severe disorders. And for me, it wasn't super severe but it was bad enough where it was an everyday thing. And honestly, it's kind of hard to even, to even go back to even thinking about it, to even like, it's even tough to explain um, because it was such a big part of my faith. Cause I thought that was how I was going to be really faithful and really committed to God and putting God first in my life. You know, like I didn't realize, um, that that could be damaging and destructive. Um, I thought that that was making, that was going to like make me righteous. That's what was making me righteous. Um, and later on finding out it's not normal for me to pray a prayer a million times in a row. Okay. Maybe not a million, but you know what I'm Mm -hmm. saying? Like I did it over and over and over again. I remember nights like sitting in the bathtub and like praying and listening to music because even music I felt like was used against me. And so I would sit there and it was like, I was always going after this religious experience that was going to hopefully be either just as moving as the time before or more moving and more sincere or more um, you're chasing after something. And I feel like that's, that's part of it with the scrupulosity. This is just in my view is I feel like I was chasing after that I mean, if you deal with perfectionism, if you deal with any of those things and all of that, I feel like just intersects and comes together when you have someone who is traumatized, who is neurodivergent, who is perfection, can be perfectionistic, who is a really deep feeler. I was a very, I am, I'm a very, very deep feeler. And the fact that I'm neurodivergent, I take shit literally. Like you tell me I need to be sincere enough. I'm going to work my damn hardest to be the most sincere Christian you've ever met, you know, because if I don't, I'm wrong or I'm bad, you know, or 
for, I mean, for many of us, us uh, trauma survivors, it's like, yeah, we're trying to prove something. <laughs> we're trying to be like, no, I am good. I promise. Like, God, mm. I'm not, you know, this mm. person that I just apologized about being this person uh, for quote unquote, my sins, which are actually just trauma responses. You know, yes. there's so many um, different places I could go, but that's, mm. that's what it makes me think of. And I'm sorry if I didn't answer your question really. No, you totally did. I think that was a beautiful <laughs> tangent if it was one. Um, and I, I'm curious what it was like to be within this high control religion as someone who's neurodivergent, as someone is queer. Mm-hmm. Did you even know those things about yourself at the time? No. No. No, I did not. I did not realize I was neurodivergent. And even, even though I was diagnosed with ADHD when I was in college, I still didn't know what neurodivergent meant, Mm -hmm. um, at all. (laughs) To me, it was like, you have ADHD, I guess you should take meds. Right. (laughs) Um, there's just a lot of things that I didn't know. Um, and then I'm sorry, what was the other, um, in the, in your queerness, was that oh yes, yes. That... Sorry, I got lost. No, that's okay. <laughs> They're neurodivergence, right? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um. Yeah, and I did not realize. I didn't put it together that I was actually a person who's bisexual until much later in my life. Mm-hmm. Um. You know, I was in my thirties. This was like several years ago, but still not that long ago. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I did not, I did not, re- I didn't realize that was an option. Like, yes. like I didn't realize that I could be that way and not be like a sinful, broken, disgusting person. Yes. Oh yeah. That resonates so much with my own experience. I mm-hmm. a shout out to all of us who later in life realize we're queer. Uh, I think there's way more of us than we know and realize like if that's your experience anyone who's listening you're definitely not alone um Mm -hmm. at what point did you start deconstructing from evangelicalism and high religion oh man that is such a great question because I feel like it's a process you know it doesn't it doesn't happen overnight it didn't happen overnight for me um but I went I was all in in this evangelical world, I was a youth pastor at the time. I was all in. Um, but I had worked uh, for Young Life. I don't know if you've heard of Young Life. Oh, yeah. Sure have. <laughs> yeah. But can you yeah. say what it is for people who aren't familiar? Yeah. So Young Life is a religious organization uh, for youth, for well, really, I was going to say high school kids, but I feel like they have, they have like middle school chapters and, but yeah, anyways, it's just, um, it's led by youth as well. Like you have people on staff like I was, but then you have, um, volunteers who are teenagers who are coming together every week. They're singing songs. They're having a little message, you know, um, it's, 
yeah, it's, it's supposed to be this um, really great thing. And there were a lot of great things about it as far as like, you know, community um, based things. But looking back, there were talks that I gave that are extremely questionable, <laughs> but you know, you gotta, you, you learn, uh, what is the quote? It's Maya Angelou. Was it you learn, um, like when you know better, you do better. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so that's yeah. what I'm thinking. Right. But you yeah. can't hold yourself to the standards that you have now for the person right. that you were then. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. But yeah, I, I worked for Young Life and I did that for a while. And then after that, I decided it was too much. There was a lot expected of me. Um, and that could be a whole conversation on its own, just like ministry and like what, um, what is demanded of people in ministry and you make it your whole life and how that could maybe like not be healthy. <laughs> but yeah, so I went from Young Life to another ministry position, which was to be a youth pastor of a Methodist church. And so... As far as like theology goes, I feel like at least for me, young life was more rigid and more um, Baptist kind of, you know, I don't know about every single like sect of religion, but for me, that's what I got. That's the kind of vibe I got. But then whenever I moved into the Methodist church, I grew up Methodist actually. So when you were asking like, oh, how did you, did you grow up with that trauma? I mean, honestly, us method, you know, growing up Methodist, it was kind of like, you mind your own business, really. You know, you didn't like, you didn't have someone leading worship and then someone's like, oh, I think you might be having sex with your boyfriend. Like, we right. need to get you off the stage. Yes. <laughs> so it wasn't like that in the Methodist church. And so I feel like I'm finally answering your question, but... <laughs> Going all circling all the way back around from Young Life to being a uh, youth pastor at a Methodist church, I feel like that's when a lot of deconstructing started happening. And I just started to realize a lot of toxic stuff from Young Life and started to kind of like put things together and then started having questions of my own. And I was like, why am I like teaching kids anything right now because there's certain things like I don't even believe um I mean I remember going to my interview and they asked me like what do you think about marriage and you know like like what's what what is, I can't remember the question it was but it like I remember thinking this question is so inappropriate I felt like it was extremely inappropriate but I felt like I had to answer and I felt like I was quote unquote, like called to get this job. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it was, um, it was really messy. And, you know, by the end I was just like, I got to get out of here. I need to go on my own journey, you know, and ask the questions I need to ask and be the person I'm going to be without people, um, watching me and watching my every move. And especially as a youth pastor, you know, I'm supposed to like, be a good example. Right. Um, right. <laughs> I was like, I don't right. think I'm the, 
you know, example y'all want anymore. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so did you choose to leave that position? I did. Or, mm-hmm. yeah. 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 I, I got to that point and I was like, I'm not going to, and at the same exact time, I, um, I had started going to grad school for clinical mental health counseling. And so once I started doing that, uh, I started to move kind of shift into a different, uh, path of like, okay, it's not going to be ministry anymore. Now I'm going to be a counselor, you know? And so, um, that had, that had a lot to do with it as well. Um, and then moving into grad school and doing all that, um, is a whole other thing. And that, that really propelled my deconstruction process because it was a religious evangelical grad school that I got accepted to, uh, you know, looking back, you're like, Oh man, if I would have just went to like a regular school, you know, like, (laughs) but that's where I was and that's what I did. But yeah, that, that, um, that really, open my eyes to everything. Yeah. In what way did being, do you think your experience being in an evangelical grad program, like what, what do you think was unique about that? I know you maybe didn't have the experience of being in like a quote secular grad program, but what do you think was different maybe about the Christian program? Yeah. Oh gosh. Yeah. Lots of, (laughs) lots of, lots of different things. Cause I mean, like in undergrad, you're just like, you're there to learn, like you're there and that's it. Mm-hmm. But in a Christian, you know, evangelical program, it's not just about learning. It's like, what is your Christian worldview? And mm-hmm. that was the question on all of my papers, every yeah. paper I wrote, every single paper I wrote, you had to have, you know, whether it was, one page, two page, three pages, four pages, five pages, even like, I can't remember, but everything had to be through that lens. And also who owns the lens? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Whose lens is it? That's the problem. Uh, Mm -hmm. That's very problematic. And so what I started realizing is I didn't have the same lens. I wasn't looking through the same lens as these people and their Christian worldview was not my Christian worldview at all. So really made writing papers hard and you're living with severe, severe cognitive dissonance. Like I've never lived with before. And I never thought that cognitive dissonance could be um, something that was so incredibly detrimental to my health, but it was extremely detrimental to my health. I mean, I was having migraines. I was having, I was sick all the time. I, I just, it was terrible. I was not doing well at all. And it was like, well, you're almost done. You're almost done with grad school. You just got to push through, push through, push through. Um, yeah. you know, cause that's our, that's our culture. I mean, we're, we're like, we care about money. We care about success. We care about approval. We care about you know, all these things. And I thought I was being the responsible person for trying to follow through in this program that was breaking me down just bit by bit. Um, 
And it's, it was in mental health, it was in clinical mental health counseling. So I'm going, wait a minute, this doesn't make any sense. Like this is degree I'm going after and what these people are doing to me is abusive. Honestly, when, when it really comes down to it, um, it was like I was being educated on abuse in my classes and then they were perpetuating that abuse. So I was like, there's some, it's not adding up. It's not working. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's, it amazes me that programs like that can even be accredited. Um, Mm -hmm. I mean, Mm -hmm. I think a lot of mental health related graduate programs are promoting abuse in different ways, but then you add the like religious layer on top of that. And it's, I mean, the undergraduate school that I went to, which was Christian, um, their social work program got de-accredited. Like, really? Yeah. It, oh, like, it's wow. No longer, it's now like a social welfare program. You can't get a bachelor's in social work there. Um, wow. Yeah. These are some really problematic institutions. Um, and I'm so Absolutely. glad that you like listened to your body's cues and got out. And I'm wondering what healing looked like and is looking like still for you. Oh. Golly, I think one of the biggest pieces for me is just loads and loads and loads of self-compassion because I feel like a big part of me was like, well, you got yourself into this. Like, you know, I think it was like, you know, wanting to like take responsibility uh, for my choices But then looking at it, like, hold up, like I was swimming in this water, this evangelical water, you know, and and it Mm -hmm. starts to, you start to, I feel like tell yourself, like, it makes sense. It makes sense that you did this. It makes sense that you gravitated towards that. It makes sense that you pushed yourself and pushed yourself until the brink of exhaustion because we're rewarded for that in our culture. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think healing for me looks like letting myself just off the hook. I don't even know what hook it is, but just, just letting myself be a person and not demanding myself to produce, perform, um, to be perfect. Um, and just really just enjoying my life instead of hyper focusing on purpose is I feel like was a big one in evangelicalism with me. I mean, it was all about what is your calling? What is your purpose? What is your, um, what is God calling you to? And it was a, it was a tactic, I think. And it really messed me up in a lot of ways and so now it's about, I feel like now it's about who, who is Rachel actually? Like, what do I like? What do I care about? What are my values? What is my vision for my life? What, what am I curious about? Um, what can I imagine? It's, it's a lot. It's not focused on like 
what I need to, what I need to be because it's like what I'm quote unquote, like supposed to be. Um, so I, I think healing for me is a, is really, really listening to myself for the first time in my life. Um, because it used to be, well, if you listen to yourself, well, that's not good because you're evil and you're, <laughs> you know, you're sinful and you're bad and you can't have any good ideas. Right. Um, right. And then Trust I started in your own understanding. Yeah. Die to self. Right. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think healing for me is about reclaiming uh, my voice and, and I do have things to say and, and not having that theology of you being born sinful, but the, not the original sin theology, but the original goodness theology. I learned a little bit about that. Um, just the concept. And I feel like the concept alone is huge, is mind blowing. Um, and I think that's, that's a big, big, big part of my healing um, and, ha and has been. And now I can look at myself and, and see inherent worth and dignity and goodness and um, not have to reach outside of myself to, to get it, to realize that it's already there. It's already within. And that's spiritual. That's to, to me. Um, you know, to each their own, but right. for me, that, that is the spiritual practice that I needed, that I was severely lacking. Yeah. 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 What does spirituality or your relationship with religion and community look like these days? Mm. So I feel like there's a lot that's if, you, if you're in a high control religion, I feel like there's, there's a way that you're supposed to do things and there's not a lot of options when it comes to your spirituality. Um, like it's not like I wasn't in a religion where there was a lot of contemplation. It was not super contemplative at all. Um, and I'm a deep feeler. I'm a deep thinker. I'm a, you know, like looking back now, I'm like, oh man, I was in the wrong place, you know? Yeah. But, uh, now I feel like there's different practices I can have even like using tarot as a practice and tarot cards. And that's something that I'm, I gravitate towards now that, you know, of course that's a no, no. If you're in high control religious space, like you're opening yourself up to the demonic and all these things, but like, I'm a visual person as well. You know, like I love to write and I love to think and all these things, but I also like, if I love looking at things that are beautiful. And so I, I'll like grab a tarot deck and just the artwork, it just opens up, um, so much for me. Um, and I think also as music was such a big one for me. And so there's a really, really deep wound there because I grew up singing and I grew up, you know, um, that was a really, really huge part of my life. And then being in the evangelical world, then you're, everyone's like, well, you have to use your gift. If you don't use your gift, 
you're not serving God. And even people will ask me to this day. <laughs> They're like, why aren't you singing? Why aren't you doing blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, buzz off, <laughs> you know, like let me live my life. And so I think part of that is just, again, like doing what I feel called to personally and um, opening myself up to practices that maybe they won't make sense to some people, but they make, may make a lot of sense to me and they're extremely healing practices. Um, yeah, I'm sorry if I didn't answer that question super well, but. Oh no, you did. And it's such a huge question too. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Do you have time to speak a little bit to your work as a somatic practitioner? I, so this is very new. I just got certified. Yeah. Yeah. So I can speak about it as far as like what it is and what I'm going to be doing. But yeah, I haven't, you know, I haven't had clients or things like that yet. So it's brand, brand new to me. But um, yeah, I got certified through the Embody Lab. They're an amazing organization. I just, yes. if you're familiar, yeah, you're familiar with them. And I just love their teachers and um that was a really amazing experience. And so, yeah, I, and it, and it, and it, I feel like it has so much to do with my healing and because you're learning how to be with clients, but then you're also, you're inevitably getting this stuff for yourself as well. And you're working through your own stuff. And, um, and I think a big part of being a somatic practitioner and being, um, a mind body coach. There, there's a couple different things you can call yourself. Right. But at the end of the day, it was really learning to connect with myself, learning to make contact with myself through whether it's meditation, breath work, um, movement, um, I mean, there was, there's like parts work in that there's inner child work. There's, it just, it all comes together. And I feel like as a trauma survivor specifically, I was really, really gravitated toward, um, this line of work because a lot of it is top down, right? A lot of it is like the CBT and the different, you know, the different like tools that you're given and not a lot of it is bottom up is like really using the body and as trauma survivors, you know, for those of us out there, we need to figure out how to connect with our bodies and not see our bodies as the enemy. And so, yeah, I, I gravitated to that big time because I was in therapy for many, many, many years and I, you know, I had progress, but there was no like sustained, like there was just nothing that was really, really, really supporting my healing at like a cellular level. I feel like until I started learning some of these practices and somatic practices and just learning what embodiment meant. I didn't know, I didn't know what that was. And so now um, I'm understanding that obviously a lot more um, and I'm really, really excited to work with clients and, um, and to help people. I feel like in ways that 
I sought, I felt like I was seeking out, but I never got um, healing that I was looking for that, you know, other practitioners couldn't provide me. Um, and so I just think there's a big gap and I think there's a lot of things to say about, obviously a coach is not a therapist and there, there's a lot to say about that. Um, and in the same breath, I don't want to act like being a somatic practitioner or a mind body coach is, is any less than, you know, the work of a therapist or someone um, who is helping facilitate, you know, somebody's healing and being with them and walking with them in it hand in hand. Um, I see it as all good. It's all good. I mean, this is coming from someone who I've been a client myself, you know, for many years, I work with a coach now. Um, and I got to the point where I could work with a coach. I didn't have to work with the therapist all the time because I feel like I did a lot of healing in therapy that then I could move into the coaching space and then things started to shift and move in huge ways that I was like, oh my gosh, I didn't know that this was possible. Um, and I was wondering why I couldn't get there in therapy. Um, and of course it depends on the therapist and it depends on their expertise. And I wasn't working with therapists that were like somatically trained or anything like that. And I'm sure it would have been very different if I had, but, yeah. but yeah, that's, um, that's something I'm really, really excited about. And it's a new, it's just really, really brand new for me. So it's, it's, it's exciting. It's scary. Um, but I know I'm on the right path and I know, I know there's a big need as well. Absolutely. Yeah. And there are so many paths to healing therapy. Yes. One coaching is one. There's so Mm -hmm. many. Mm -hmm. Um, are you taking, clients or what does that timeline look like if people are wanting to work with you or connect with you in any capacity? Yeah. Um, I'm not taking clients yet as I'm still trying to figure out some of the details and dang, there are quite a bit of details. (laughs) (laughs) I'm like, wow, starting a business is like no joke. Um, so yeah, I'm not quite there yet, but for anyone who is interested, um, you can follow me on Instagram at marigold.meyer. Um, sounds kind of weird and I'll probably have a change, I'm sure pretty soon here, but for now you can follow, um, follow me on there and I will have updates on my Instagram. Um, so I'm hoping to start taking clients within the next, I probably say, I'll probably say two months. Because it's, it's taking some time. It's just, you know, mm-hmm. it's a whole process. And I think I'm giving myself a little more time too, because right now it's the holidays and it's crazy yes. and I have kids and it's, yeah, it's just a lot. So I'm like, I don't have to, you know, I don't have to push, push, push right. until I pass out. <laughs> no, no, we're not going to do that again. No more. I'm like- not going to do it again. I learned. Yes. 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 We, yes. I, I, I learned a lesson. Yeah. So definitely pacing myself, but, um, yeah, but I will be taking clients soon. It's just, it's, it'll take me a little bit of time, but I'm super excited for it. So yeah, for anyone who's interested, I would say go to my Instagram. 
Amazing. For sure. Yeah, and I will link that in the show notes. And I'll also, on my Instagram page, I'll keep people updated when I see your updates. So I can share that so people can yeah. see what's going on. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, thank Rachel, you. thank you so much for being here. This is such a rich conversation. Um, thank I really, you. I really value this. Thank you, Carrie. I really appreciate the opportunity to to come talk with you and I really enjoyed it. So thanks. Thanks a lot. This has been another conversation with your friend, the therapist to follow the podcast. You can find us on Instagram at your friend, the therapist pod, and you can follow my work as a trauma therapist and yoga teacher on Instagram at Carrie Fillion psychotherapy on my website, carriefillion.com. Take care and stay well.